This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Conversations. So welcome Barkha. Uh, like uh, you have been told, Barkha needs an introduction. Uh, just to give you a perspective, I was also told I need no introduction because I think Bablu felt bad that after Barkha needs an introduction and then the other guys so and so. But I have uh, worked in various capacities in news in the last uh, 15-20 years and I have also worked um, uh, at NDTV for a while writing a satire show and Barkha was the queen of the party. Uh, but we'll come to that later. Barkha, a fantastic reporting on the ground you, on COVID. You. And like uh, we were told, you were the first one out there. Uh, before we get into the journey of Mojo and your other enterprise that you're running, tell me when did you decide? Because you, I think within the lockdown, within the first week you were out. So was it like a spontaneous decision, chalo, 22 kilometers and then you just carried on and on? Or you had said, okay, I'm going to head out and I'm only going to come back after like 100 days on the road? Um, no, here's how it happened. The Prime Minister announces at 8 p.m. that from midnight the country is going to close. And uh, I wake up the next morning and initially I say, let me just go to the borders of Delhi to see what's happening. And I go to the border and I find, one, that I'm the only journalist there, which kind of shocks me. The second, that there's no police there, which shocks me even more. There's no representation of the state, of no state. Not the center, not Delhi, not the border states of UP. And I just see people walking. So initially, I just took a couple of photographs. I thought maybe it's an aberration. You went by yourself. I went with, uh, by then I had a small team of a producer and a camera person. So the three of us just got into the car and we said, border tak dekh ke aate kya ho So we went to the border. And we saw these men, and initially it was only men, and they were very angry. And they were walking, and I took a couple of photographs. And then I said, let me check another state border. Let me just go. I was at the UP border, I said, let me see what's happening at the Punjab border. And I found that the same thing was happening. And I remember that the first day what I did was, I just tweeted the chief minister, saying something very dangerous is happening, because I could pick up that the exodus of people from the cities had begun. But I did not know the scale that I was about to witness. So the first couple of days, I would go to the border and I would come back because I, I wasn't sure quite what to do. And then I realized, because for three days in a row, I saw this happening. And there was no response, nothing. I, I must have marked my video reports, my photographs to every single chief minister, every single central minister, there was nothing, there was just silence. And that week ended with that first panic reaction that, chalo, let them all go home by bus. So you saw a whole horde of them uh, gathering uh, at the Anand Vihar bus stop. And suddenly, all of our elites started saying, ye garib log, ye dekho, inko social distancing karna nahi aata, etc. Because nobody had even thought of placing people in single file. Like, it is so elementary. You could have had paramilitary, you could have had police, you could have said, 200 people at a time, make a single file line, here are the barriers, put 10 barriers on the road, none of that happened. And that end of that first week is when I realized I can't sit inside my office, inside my house and tell the story. I didn't know the scale of what I was going to witness once I set forth, but I gave myself a week in the capital observing this, observing the invisibility of the story in terms of the media, observing the non-response of the government, and pretty much realizing that this story is not even going to be understood unless you're out there. And that's when you stepped out and what was the first place you headed to? The, across UP, Punjab? No. I, so you, had, you had decided when you said, okay, now I've got to get out there. But 
just get out and come back or you knew that you'd go right across India? I had no idea that I would be going right across India. And in the first couple of weeks, I would sometimes drive 16, 18 hours. I spent some nights in the car. Uh, sometimes I would say, it doesn't matter if we don't sleep, let's just get back to base in Delhi. The reason for that was that these were the early days. We, weren't, we hadn't yet done a calculation of uh, how much risk we were willing to take. So we, and there was nothing open. There was literally nothing open. There was nowhere to stay. There was nowhere to eat. So where did you stay? Where did you eat? So the first few days we came back to Delhi, even if it meant we spent some nights in the car, we spent some, in some cases, friends of friends. Do you know anyone in, in Udaipur? Ha, mera ek dost hai, uska ek dost hai, uska ek dost hai, uske paas ek khet hai, khet mein ek kamra hai, omelette mil jayega. There were a lot of those moments. Uh, but in the, again, so it was in stages. The first week I did all of the borders of Delhi and I said, oh my God, I need to leave. The next week I would like drive to Jaipur, come back to Delhi same day. I drove to Indore and back in one, in one go. Wow. Because there was nowhere to stay. But we did have a local stringer whom we hired and I said, can I sleep in your house for two hours? Because it was the first time I wore a PPE and I wasn't prepared for, and we'll, we can talk about that, I wasn't prepared for how that was going to make me feel. And I felt so sick at the end of it, I actually had to ask him, can I, can I just rest for a few hours in your house? So he said, sure. So he gave us a bed, we slept, he gave us dal chawal. And then we said, let's go back. So initially, that's how we approached it. And then we were like, this is just idiotic. Let's just leave. And once we left, we didn't know that we would be able to get to Bombay. Our, our, our aim was very modest. Can we do Delhi to Bombay via Rajasthan, Gujarat? And we also, at that time, there was a reason that Gujarat and Maharashtra were the worst uh, hit st uh, states at the time that we left and we didn't think we could get to Bombay and once we got to Bombay we were like now we're in Bombay oh Hyderabad is what 13 hours away Karnataka is another 13 hours can we do Kerala it's two days but then we got used to two days felt like nothing 48 hours felt like nothing and that's how it happened and you also got places to stay and eat and it got way. well just because you know been around so long you kind of know you can sometimes cajole people, you can sometimes argue your way, and you can sometimes plead. So I would, I then developed this trick. I had one of three kind of tricks in this. I would either just post online, and I would say, does anyone have a place to stay in so-and-so place? And there were people who would respond. Or I would call the district collector of an area, and I would say, I'm here, I have nowhere to stay, I don't need anything from you except for you to give permission for me for a, a guest house to give me a room. There were no hotels for a guest house to give me a room. And they'd say temperature check hoga, you know, all that, oximeter check hoga. So that would get checked and then, so we developed ways, but often it was still friends of friends of friends. Okay, now along the way, tell us about some of the stories you came across, the ones that shocked you or didn't shock you, the surprised you, inspired you very depressing ones as well. So I'm going to go through some of these photographs and Angad, if you could just, uh, you know, so what I found my life became this kind of surreal uh, sort of moment where, so just to give you a sense, we covered by the end of it about 24,000 kilometers and we traveled by the end of it from the north to the south. So the southernmost state I was able to reach was Kerala. And somewhere in the middle, the whole standoff with China happened. And so if you just hold on to that picture for a second. Uh, and then I reached Ladakh. But if we, so that's a picture you see that's literally nighttime and it was raining. And what had started happening was that men, women and children were either walking on highways or they were begging trucks, commercial trucks that were plying 
for lifts and the truck drivers were very very scared because they thought that the police would haul them up but as we traveled in the days went by as happens in india a kind of jugaad system emerged for people to travel so i mean these are photographs in no particular order but this is how a lot of people traveled they traveled at the back of trucks uh, there were sometimes 100 150 people in the backs of trucks that's actually in uh, out the outskirts of hyderabad and these workers uh, who had no money who were out of jobs their factory workers were not paying them they would pay 3000 to 10000 rupees to get a spot on the truck and they would huddle together like this women and children and this particular photograph i remember the little girl's name was pallavi and and i said you know you've left you had to leave where you lived you you know you what is your dream and she said well i'm going to grow up and i'm never going to be poor i my dream is i'm never going to be poor and i just remember how much that stayed with me and which is why like i met hundreds of people but i can never forget this little girl and then here were other children and you know i call them the children of the lockdown because nobody had spoken about what was happening to children children who are going through this acute psychological physical economic uh, displacement and that's also in andhra pradesh and this became um, abhinandan in some ways a defining image of my life like i would go to a state and i would meet a man or a woman carrying a child on their head or just their entire universe packed into some little sack on their head and this man was going to walk 700 kilometers on foot to his village and had, had like their their money was enough to get them biscuits and water and it would just enrage me because at the same time you had the supreme court being told by the highest law officer of this land that there are no migrants on the road and every day i would meet these poor people on the road and i would say to them you know what's making you leave and they would just say one thing the poverty is going to kill us before the virus we have no way to stay you know where we are and so you know these are the kind of like i have hundreds of such images uh, sort of recorded this was another man carrying a 5 year old child uh, and the women would often carry the bags and the men would carry the children uh and if you know one day i asked them uh, some people found it very intrusive of me but i did think that what do you carry when you leave like what what happens like if if you had to pack one bag and i'm just leaving that thought with all of you also like if you had one bag to carry and move your life what would you carry in it and i found it so moving because workers i met they were carrying three white plastic buckets and i said can i if you don't mind can i see what's in this bucket ha dekhiye they were going to bihar from andhra pradesh and in that were their their ozar their workmen's tools their shovels their hammers just their tools and one blanket and i said why are you carrying this kahi kaam mil jayega so that sense of wanting to earn a living uh, never left that's just you know we we'll we'll talk about it later i did the rounds of many covid hospitals and we had to do this full gear this story i mean and then to answer your question um this one just it stayed with me it was among the earliest stories i did it was from haryana it was from a village where a migrant worker from bihar his name was mukesh uh, he sold his mobile phone this happened a lot but this was the first such story i found where a man sold his mobile phone his mobile phone got him 2000 rupees with 500 rupees he bought a fan because it was really hot he gave the rest of the money to his wife because there was no access to rations and the next morning he basically tied himself to a bamboo pole in his neighborhood and killed himself and this was his family and the administration was irate with me after this story because in india to say that there's a hunger driven suicide is a very political uh, kind of thing and they said no no he had mental health issues so i investigated the story a little more i went back to the father and the father said 
the, fa the father-in-law rather was illiterate and he said the police came and they made me put my angutha on a statement and they said you put your angutha ne to aapke khilaf police case ho jayega so these are really i mean you know we will place the photographs in loop and if i see something more that's interesting i'll talk about it but that these are the kind of things that and they would haunt me you know they would haunt me and sorry just this, this boy's name was he was 9 years old and his name was nitin and i said to him playfully as he was getting into a bus from bhivandi which is in maharashtra to go to azamgarh in up and i said to him aapko malum hai corona virus kya hai what do you know the corona virus is ha i said batao he said uska matlab hai mujhe khana nahi milta that was his definition and so basically i witnessed that we had two challenges we had the pandemic and then we had this humanitarian crisis unfolding and it was unfolding in a in a way that was almost invisible for the longest time at least in our television channels uh, and and we just couldn't get enough people to care till we just did it relentlessly and finally we broke through and you know finally things moved but in the beginning it was like i guess people were so worried for their own lives that they just didn't want to hear about tragedy the other thing that happened to me was as i traveled with these people i went from being a supporter of the lockdown to an absolute opponent of the lockdown the lockdown was literally achieving nothing like i think after the first three weeks it should have been called off in phases because i saw slum tenements where eight people lived in one room and i was like what does stay at home mean for these people i did research and i found that 92 million households in india live in one room homes i was like what does stay at home mean for these people i went to covid hospitals where the wards were the size of our closets and i was like what you can't even socially distance inside a hospital so we have taken a cut and paste copy and paste model from the west well intentioned like everybody else i was like this needs to be done it needs a it needs to give a health system space but as it went on the humanitarian crisis was so gigantic that it was like and it was not and as the data now shows us from the serological surveys that the infection is hugely widespread and actually not as lethal i think the lockdown should have been recalibrated a lot earlier okay um we'll i guess sorry, maybe come back to the story no that's fine no that's fine because we want to hear this story as well i mean i was just thinking my my journey around the country has been so different from yours i used to produce and direct a show called highway on my plate so we drove all over the country and we drove all over the country looking at food and you drove all over looking at hunger um yeah but now tell me about the experience of and here i'm asking as a news professional yeah. who also runs an organization how much risk is acceptable risk as a news professional and what is the kind of risk that you found acceptable and uh, you know tell us about the pp kit when did you say okay i'll put this on and enter the hospital yeah so the confusing firstly the confusing thing in reporting this story has been that the science has changed so often so when i started reporting it i remember i was interviewing the chief scientist of the world health organizations who happens to be indian and i said to her should i be wearing masks and she said absolutely not i'm sitting here in geneva i'm not wearing a mask why are you wearing a mask leave the mask for the doctors so we wouldn't wear masks because that's what we were told i went to all india medical institute i asked the resident doctors the same question as a mask don't touch the mask we need them that seemed reasonable why should we be you know going and even the ppe was a morally difficult question for me because at that time there was a sense that there weren't going to be enough ppes but i was like if i have to enter a covid hospital then i have to wear a ppe in any case the hospitals don't let you enter it's right. totally their determination where you can go what you should wear now this question of acceptable risk is a very difficult one because left to myself i am a maverick 
and i it's not that i'm not scared but my adrenaline would push me to take extreme risk that has been the trajectory of my career when i've really wanted to do something but as someone who now runs a small organization i can't apply that personality to my colleagues right uh so it was a very difficult decision for me to take uh, in terms of travel we were a four person team a driver a camera person and a field producer and me and so small lean um uh, and the camera person among us was really petrified the producer was not the driver was not i was not but he he really had a problem with what we were doing and so there were times when he chose to stay out and we went and filmed ourselves you know so we had to let him have that choice which i think in a previous avatar of mine you know if i were an employee in ndtv i would be like what the hell why can't you go but being responsible now for another life suddenly felt much more complicated i felt more frightened by that than i felt at the risks i had to take for myself so there is no way to define what's acceptable risk here's how i saw it i saw the media was listed as an exempt essential service there were other people taking the same risks that i was ready to take which is that they were going out to do their job they were going into hospitals they were going into bastis they were doing tests there were shopkeepers taking the same risk the, the russian store owner was taking a risk the security guard at hospital at all india medical the matter boys swiggy boys the matter boys the swiggy boys the nurses the sanitation workers the people sweeping our streets so who was i to say i can't take the same risk as you know as all of these people and i felt that this was now a test of why i became a journalist and i felt like if i don't do this i have flunked and it reminded me of this nine i think he was 19 a 19 year old soldier i met in kargil and i i had asked him whatever 21 years ago don't you feel scared and he said of course i feel scared but if i don't do this my entire life i prepared for this moment to join the military if i can't do this this is what i was trained for then if i can't do this it was a meaningless choice and if i had to fast forward to this moment i felt there were nights i would wake up and I'd say i'm going to get this thing it's in the beginning i used to feel it a lot but if i can't do this why did i become a journalist and it becomes that kind of obsessive internal thing so all we told ourselves and we got a bit careless as we went along because and we can talk about that but all we told ourselves is we'll hand sanitize we'll wash our hands so we carried bottles of water in our dicky and we'll wear normal masks we didn't wear n95 by the end of it we just wore those three tier surgical masks and that's all we could do and and we did it and if we go inside a covid ward we will have to wear a ppe these are the four things we did and you wanted to tell us about the ppe kit experience what was that like so i bring this up only because so initially what i i would discover that every time i would wear a ppe that evening i would be sick and i used to feel very embarrassed because sick as in you get you know i would feel so i would have to often run out of the place i was reporting strip to the skin somehow get out of it pour a bottle of water on myself because my body felt like the body temperature was kind of altering because i was like sweating and i was feeling asphyxiated and then that feeling would stay with me for many hours and i would feel so embarrassed because i think of myself as this really tough reporter and i would hate that people would get to see this and people saw it people would see me pouring bottles of water on myself and you know generally look, looking completely mad and needing to sleep it off if i could 
after I'd filed the story and all of that. And then I started talking to nurses who have to, and, and by the way, COVID duty is six hours as opposed to eight hours because of the PPE. And, uh, and I found really strange stories. People would say, the smell of the plastic lingers on. Uh, if we go home for two days, no one's willing to you know, touch us because that plastic smell carries on. My head hurts. I met a nurse who said that you know, no one even thought of designing this thing for women because I got my period when I was in the PPE. The nurse was telling me. Uh, the nurse was telling me that you know you have no idea what it feels like to be a woman bleeding in this damn thing which is covered head to toe and is designed in a way that you can't even lift it and go to the loo. It's just one long, like you know. It, so I realized that there's something about it that is not you know and 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 I bring it up only because these it's not so much about me but there were people who were in this day after day after day after day and and they actually said it made them physically sick. It made them physically sick, but this was all that was available. And they didn't know whether what made them sick was that they couldn't breathe. These face shields that people would wear, they would fog up. People couldn't see. The number of doctors I have met who said, it just falls off. When you run into the ICU to intubate someone, it either smogs up, or it fogs up, or it falls off. And they still had to go ahead and do this. So for me, this PP became like a way of understanding the sort of complexity of what we were dealing with, and that medicine had not quite given us the tools to counter it, even in protected environments. Okay, um, let me just move into, with the context of not enough ground reporting have, yeah. have, having been done in the beginning uh, on COVID, and the COVID-induced uh, economic shock that is inevitable, and some people already feeling it. Uh, the stock market definitely isn't, but there are more complicated reasons yeah. for that. Uh, without going into the usual, you know, high news ki moth ho gai kind of thing, surely the professionals are the same. Uh, you and I have seen many of the people work. I have seen many of them change. In fact, I was on a panel with Deepak Chaurasia some time ago. I was like, dude, we were at Newstrike. Yeah. You were not this person. Well, he was a fabulous so, reporter so, at one point. Yeah. So what do you think has determined news abandoning reporting and embracing another model. Why do you think that is? Diagnose that for us. So, so before I answer this, I have to have a Mia Kalpa moment. And the Mia Kalpa moment is that if I had not left television, and I left it for a variety of reasons, but we, we don't have to get into that, or we could later if you ask me about it, but for the moment, because that's not the question. If I had not left television, I suspect that while I would never have been a shouty TV anchor, hate-mongering, I may have become a lazy journalist. There was something about it that had become so formulaic. There, had some, there was something about it that was just this stale thing of one right wing, one left wing, one centrist, put them together, do the news of the day, they'll, they'll debate amongst themselves, the audience will be somewhat bored, somewhat entertained, you'll go home. Although I always thought of myself as a kind of true-blooded reporter and I would still have my breakout moments, but I was also falling into this trap of that becoming my everyday. Why does it happen? It happens, one, primarily because the revenue model, as you know, is totally broken. Nobody in television newsrooms has money, right? So you've got to negotiate all the time with your editors uh, or your owners or your promoters. Give us the budget to go. And you know what those budget discussions are like. Why do you need this? Where will you stay? So talk is cheap. 
Secondly, there is some sense that news has shifted into the background noise for those who still watch it on television. I don't know how many people do, but it seems to have shifted into this thing that happens in the back while you're busy doing something else. So I think television feels this great compulsion to somehow grab your attention. And they don't think that they can grab your attention with a nuanced, complex story that, ne that needs you to actually listen or watch. And therefore, they think that if you make a lot of noise or you have some character or if you have some flamboyance in that thing, then maybe people will look up from their chola bhatura and watch you or from their mobile phone and watch you because otherwise they're not watching you. Uh, the third thing is the, what I call the ornibification of television news uh, or what, you know, the failure, let's say, of the Congress vis-a-vis -vis the BJP. There are parallels in politics. And what I mean by that is there was this formula and, you know, whatever we may think of him and, you know, we... I've never made any bones about what I think of him. There was a formula that an Ornab Goswami brought to television content. And what everybody else started doing was to be pay limitations of that. So you couldn't be that because you felt embarrassed or you just couldn't shout like that or you didn't want to be that. But you felt this pressure to be some version of that. And in that being some version of that, you weren't anything. You weren't anything. You were just doing some variant of the Ornab Goswami shouty talk show with many post-it stamp sized windows and you were ending up being nothing because you weren't being authentic to yourself, right? Um, and so I think, and why I brought up the Congress BJP is because it's, it's a little bit similar. Like, you know, first the Congress like attacked, attacked the BJP and then it decided to become some version of it, right? And it was just bad at being a version of the BJP. So it ended up being nothing. So, I mean, I'm just trying to borrow from other spaces and, you know, Pepsi Coke parallels have been drawn there. Any number in corporate India, you'll find parallels like this, that you try and be somebody else, you're not fully them, and you're not then no longer yourself. So I think all of these things happened, and then I think with COVID, I don't know if there was a fourth factor of fear. I think some people were just, who have reported otherwise, which there's some really decent reporters who, didn't, who have still not stepped out of their house. Some of them are my friends. I have fought with them saying, what the hell is wrong with you? You just can't, I don't know what it is. It's like some collective paralysis. Okay, now, um, you, I mean, we have, I don't want to get into the details of it, but the Sushant Singh Rajput case, ah. there are hmm. political uh, yeah. reasons for it, but from being just, uh, you know, unfortunate uh, suicide of a star, uh, it has become this huge conspiracy. Um, I personally think there is not enough evidence to support that conspiracy, but if a CBI inquiry can get us that clarity, well and good, but it was a creation of media. That, now, it's hard to say whether the, you know, rather hysterical news media caused that decision, uh, but we have seen in the past that television has an impact that print doesn't. While print has a certain credibility, uh, it doesn't have the impact that television does, that, that noise does sometimes make things happen. Uh, we have seen that in the case of Justice or Jessica, we've seen that in the case of the Jan Lokpal movement, we've seen that in several cases. Do you feel, as a news professional, uh, impact trumps quality that if you had a show at prime time, and Barkha Dutt's show, irrespective of what other formula were happening, and I have my disagreements with you on many other issues, but it was a show of quality and it would have an impact. Do you feel that while you can do quality journalism here, what is the impact? And do you still think television has the impact that, that, that you could make happen back then? 
So it's a really interesting question and I don't think there's an easy yes or no answer to it if I had to be honest. Can you have an impact by being an independent, small, eight-person team? That's, that's, what, that's what I am. I have eight people in my team and I'm the primary journalist in it, right? As of now. Um, the short answer is yes. Uh, COVID taught me that if your reporting is robust, you are able to kind of break through uh, the crowd. You are. Uh, you are able, you, you have to just be committed, consistent and passionate, the same things you were in television. Uh, is it tougher? It's tougher primarily because you don't have access to the same sort of resources. So you don't have, you know, the, the, the necessary reach or the advertising muscle or the marketing muscle to make yourself But your voice can have an impact. It but can it, make things happen. I, I, I personally think that the migrant exodus story is almost single-handedly associated with me today. And I didn't have a television show. So that was proof to me that it can have an impact. But do I have to work harder at it to, harder at it to have an impact? Yes. Uh, that's point one. Point two, uh, there are certain kinds of things that unleash a sense of, I want to say mob, but it has also been channelized for, some would argue, good things. It has delivered justice. And Justice for Jessica was a campaign I was associated with. Uh, when I look back at the Jan Lokpal bill, I wonder whether we were as complex as we should have been. Like, those are questions you have. But television has the capacity to therefore unleash a mass collective, I want to say hysteria, because that's actually what it is. Mm -hmm. um, that, that you and I don't have. You don't have it at News Laundry, I don't have it at Mojo. We're too, we're too small, we're too individual. Um, so we don't have that. The question is, do you want to have that? I've almost been, I've done one interview on the Sushant Singh story and a lot of people thought I did the wrong thing and I really wrestled with it. Yeah, we'll discuss that. Yeah, and you, can, and you can come to that. But I've literally done one and then I did it and I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this story. And in my life, I don't think I've ever said that about a story. But I don't want to do it. And I don't want to do it. And in the beginning when you did it, it was because everybody was doing it and that was the story. It was like the journalist no, knew that, then no. why did you do that? Because a lot, when the Sushant Singh Rajput story or the initial nepotism debate started unfolding, I was still like a boring, earnest, sincere reporter doing COVID. Hmm. I returned home from COVID after 130 days. So this thing had already started and I was in my COVID bubble. I was like, Kuch ho hoga, mujhe nahi I don't remember the last time I watched television news program. So I had... I, I was like oblivious. When I came back, you know, uh, someone in my house was watching flipping channels, as happens. And I heard an anchor on one of the main channels say about Rhea Chakravarti, who I don't know. I didn't even know she existed till a month ago. She left her boyfriend. She left her boyfriend. She's a gold digger. The anchor was saying it, not a guest. The anchor was saying it. And something in me as a woman said, Oh my God, tomorrow if I leave my boyfriend, they'll do the show on me. Literally, it was, it was a tipping point for me as a woman to see, I know nothing about this Riya Chakravarti. I have no idea. I make no comments on the merits of this case. I know nothing about it. I don't know if this case is going to be registered as a homicide. I don't know if she's taken his money. I don't know. I don't know anything about her. But to hear some Loteri Dulhan, that was the hashtag on Instagram to be to have a woman deconstructed for making a personal choice in leaving a man, it really bothered me. And by coincidence, I get this phone call from a friend in Bombay, acquaintance, 
who said that Sushant Singh Rajput, and I know you want to ask me about this, so I'll just segue in briefly and then you can ask me what you want to, that Sushant Singh Rajput's therapist lives in my building. She wants to say something and nobody is willing to carry her statement. And I said, if your statement is official, I know Barkha will carry it. But you've not been covering the story, why? She asked me the same question and I kind of gave her the same answer. And then she said, will you talk to her once? Then I spoke to her and I eventually carried a statement, but I know you want to ask me something about that, so go so ahead. I'm just the context in case you haven't watched it. Uh, enough reporting and panel discussions on this. The one that Barkha got a lot of heat on was she spoke to the therapist of Sushant Singh Rajput and asked him about his mental... Her, her. her sorry. Uh, her, uh, asked her about his, uh, you know, mental makeup and the therapist spoke about it and you got a lot of flack saying that this breaches... Uh, you know, patient doctor privilege, and as a reporter, you shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. And I did read up, someone had said that the law, even doctors are also bound by the law. They cannot breach their privileges like lawyers are. Yeah. Uh, the exception is that in case they, uh, it is to protect somebody else. For example, if, you know, Barkha is my therapist and I tell her I'm going to kill one of you, she's free to tell you that that's the only time it's breached. But here, that wasn't the case. So, do you think it was inappropriate? Were you aware of the law? Do you regret it now? Hmm. Where are you on that? So I wish I hadn't got into the story because I just find the story odious. I, it's the only story in 22 years of being a journalist that I don't want to touch. But I don't believe I was wrong to, in, to give space to that therapist and I'll tell you why. Um, yeah, I don't believe I was wrong. I'm thinking about that, but yeah, I don't believe I was wrong. Um, and, and here's why I think not. I was not fully comfortable with it. That's why I'm still hesitating and I'm almost thinking my way through. So if, you, if I was fully comfortable, I would have said that immediately. But on reflection even, I think it was necessary. And I think it was necessary because, and here's what actually happened. So this woman turned out to be a British woman who lives in Bombay. Again, I know nothing about her. I, I've never met her. I know nothing about her. The one thing maybe I could have done was a little more homework on her. If, if you ask me what I could have done differently, I could have done a little more homework on her. But after two, three conversations, the initial agreement was for an interview. She finally called me and she said, Barkha, I'm British. They won't let me survive here if I do an interview with you. But I have a statement. This is the statement I gave to the police. And I would like it released on a media platform. I sent it to so-and-so group, so-and-so group, so-and-so group. Nobody's willing to publish it because it doesn't go with the dominant narrative of our time. Can I send you the statement? So she sent me the statement. The statement basically said that he, was, he had a bipolar disorder and that she did not recognize uh, the Rhea Chakravarti that she saw described uh, on television because it was Rhea who had always got him to all their sessions and she had tried her best to look after Sushant the best that she could. Now, at that time, I think the news person in me took over and I said to her, this is a very, no one's going to read text. She said, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to do an interview. So I said, well, it has to be your, this is your take. So why don't you say it in your voice? And she said, but no questions. I said, but I have some questions offline that I need to understand. And she said, what? And I said, the first thing I'm going to be asked is that you are breaking privilege with your patient. Mm -hmm. And how are you okay doing that? And she said, I'm okay doing that because I worry that another life should not be lost. And I have seen this vilification of this girl and I'm not comfortable with it. So I believe this is the thing for me to do. So I told her, I said, I know nothing about this girl and I still stand by this. I have no idea whether this is right, wrong, whatever. But it doesn't seem right to me that you can't get your statement out. 
Now on reflection, it was pointed out to me that ideally her statement should have gone to the cops and I should have journalistically been able to source it from the cops. And I think that would have been maybe a better way to do it, but the moral question would still have remained. Yeah, the, right? the, you would be, it would be legally more appropriate, but the ethics moral of it would be the same, whether you do it this way or that way, sure. But if, but I am saying that if the narrative has become that this person is not depressed, and the ferocious resistance to even contemplating that he could have had a mental health disorder. And this is playing out in public. So, so a lot of doctors I spoke to suggested that she could have said this to the police and the police should have quietly investigated this dimension. And I said, for me, this is not a police dimension. I find it really problematic as somebody who has reported on mental health issues that there is such a ferocious resistance that people are saying dumb things like, but he looked happy, see this photograph, he was smiling in this photo, see, he's smiling, well, he can't it, have mental it's health. It's happening even now, even after, you know, we published a piece on yeah. Dummy's Guide to Mental Health for News Anchors, but it clearly has no impact. Okay, let me move on to... So, then, was it the best decision? No. Do I really regret it? No. Because I think when something starts playing out in public, the counter also has to be in public. Sure, okay. Now, let's come to your journey to Mojo. Uh, I have seen you, um, and I say this purely as far as reach is concerned, not the quality of reporting, which you're probably your prime is still to come, but I've seen you at your prime when Barkha Dat was the most well-known journalist in the country. Um, uh, I have seen the kind of impact you had, the kind of influence you had. Why did you not stick with broadcast? Surely the, I mean, your shows had not become what we see now and they need not have if you didn't want that to. From NDTV to Tiranga to Mojo, tell us about that journey. Why did you leave each of these places? Okay. So, NDTV, I feel like, if I feel like I made a mistake, it is that I didn't uh, leave earlier. And what I mean by that is that it was a very protected place. It was a brilliant place for young people. It was a very, very super place to learn your skills and to uh, maybe be in your 20s, in your 30s. But I kind of was still there in my early 40s. I'm 48 now. And, you know, I left it in 2017. And I think what ended up happening was that I saw a lot of my peers having left and gone on to what I thought were more independent things, independent of the strangle. It was like leaving home, you know, how you sort of, you, you're like... Your peers like Rajdeep, etc. Even an Ornab, but yeah, but, even an Ornab had left. But that didn't quite work out. Like. Not initially. But I'm just saying that I think what happened was that sometimes you outgrow that sense of... Th this is how my bosses think journalism has to be done and I'm going to listen to them because I'm an employee. I think that, to be completely fair to them, I evolved into my own person. And we did not always have the same sense of what content should look like, what news should be like. When I was younger, I was much more willing and able to go by Pranoy and Radhika's sense of what news should look like. But as I grew older, I had very definitive opinions of my own and we often had arguments and those arguments mostly were absorbed till we had a till we started having some terrible arguments over one or two stories and eventually until this date i don't know a couple of my stories were censored like i did them and i was simply told you've got to drop them you've just got to drop these stories they've got to go off and look looking back and given the state of the media i don't think this should have been headline news to me but I was much more impetuous then, I was less calm then, and I kept saying, but why? 
and there was no good answer. And I said, is it pressure from the government? Because by then we all knew that there were multiple cases by the government against them. Now, whether it was pressure or not, they didn't want to concede that to me. I still think that's what happened. I still think that that's what caused them to drop the stories that they did with me. And uh, by the end of it, we just argued so much that they felt that if they were to keep me in this kind of daily news role, we would argue all the time. And I felt like I was absolutely right. And I wanted to be in daily news, but I just didn't want to be in daily news here anymore because we were arguing too much. And so when my contract ended, we kind of both said, we can't see eye to eye with each other anymore. It's time to go. So after, what, a 20, 22 years stint then? Uh, <clears throat> Well, I joined in 95, so 95 and I left in 2017. 22 years stint there. Would you say that your parting was amicable? Or because sometimes one still sees a lot of anger from you on social media against them. I mean, them. not for a while now. So yeah, I but think, initially I, I one think, day. I think I'm kind of over it now. But I was extremely uh, resentful and angry and cynical uh, in the way that we parted. Why? Uh, because I felt that they had not lived up to the image of editorial integrity that they had conveyed to me all my life and that they conveyed to the outside world. And I felt that they were not straightforward enough with me. Like, I'm able to say, look, we outgrow, outgrew each other. It happens between people. We argued about stories. The environment had become untenable. And I see it as a mutual process. I don't know that they would acknowledge it as such. I think their personalities are um, different. I think they're less plain spoken. They're less blunt. And they, they'd be like, no, no, Barkha just wanted to move on. And, you know, we wish her all the best. That's not what happened. I mean, what happened was we had a fight over censorship, over the censorship of a story. And the argument got unpleasant. And we both felt that we don't get along anymore. That's what happened, right? So uh, I, it was not an amicable parting. And it remained uh, fraught for a while. And then, you know, you get over these things. And I got over it. And then came Tiranga. Now, um, Which was a terrible mistake. Okay, tell us about that. Why did you take that up? For those of you who know, Taranga was a channel floated by uh, Kapil Sibyl, uh, among others. I'm, I'm guessing mm. it wasn't just his baby. Uh, and that didn't last very long. It just was launched just before the general election. Uh, why, so si why did you take so that up? So since we're speaking so plainly, when I left NDTV, the initial response of people was, I had a flood of offers. Flood of offers from literally every channel, maybe uh, short of Republic and Times now. You know, almost all of the other channels were like, why don't you come and do a show with us? By then, I did feel like having left this Chhatra Chaya of NDTV, it would be nice to be a consultant somewhere and try and grow a company of my own. So maybe do some shows but not become a full-time employee. And the UP 2007, so I said, and the other thing I did was I said, I want to learn the digital medium. So I wrote to Raghav Behel, who runs Quint, and I said, can I come and work with you for a month? I just... I don't want anything. I just want to learn this medium. So he says, will you cover the elections for us? I said, sure. So, so I told everybody, I'm not going to go from NDTV straight to another channel. I want to just step back, take a few months off. It's the first time I'm taking some time off in 22 years. So I went and I did this one-month gig just to learn what a digital newsroom is like. And I'd had all of these other conversations with these channels. And the offers were very specific. They were down to terms, staff, whatever. And when the BJP swept... Um, the UP election, each one of these offers was withdrawn. And I was basically told uh, that, you know, given the political environment, we cannot give you a show. 
right? So I didn't automatically think that I never wanted to be on TV. Uh, basically, the doors of television were shut to me. And initially, that made me extremely cynical because whether or not, you know, I aspire to be the best, but even if I'm not the best, I'd certainly count myself among the top five broadcast journalists of this country. And to me, to say, to, to, be, to hear from people that as among the top five broadcast journalists of this country, we don't want you on television because the politics doesn't allow it. And some extremely rich, powerful promoters said this to me to my face, right? And so I understood that I'm not going to get a television show. I'm not going to get it. And I can either sit, or sit on my haunches and feel sorry for myself, or I've just got to get up, get on with life, and find I still know this medium, and I've got to know how to speak its grammar somewhat differently for the digital age. Tiranga was basically... And in the middle of all this, I get this call saying, listen, we want to have a channel, and we promise you it will not be a Congress channel. There are other people. There's Karan Thapar. There's, so all of these credible names had been sort of tied up. We're looking for a professional editor. They got Manish Chibber, who was an old-time legal course, to be the editor. And I was just like, listen, I can't be the editor of this channel, because I knew that would create a set of conflicts. But I'm happy to do a show for you as a consultant. And that was signed on. And then, unfortunately, I think all of us who said yes to the channel were very stupid. Uh, but I think we were in the same position. Karun had been sh shown the door. Uh, for also political reasons. Uh, and so, you know, and since then we've seen this trend. You will see an increasing number of people who are on television who are now not on television. And I suspect that the reason is political in every single case. Political meaning, I don't think the government has called these people. Mm -hmm. I think, I, let's be fair to the government. I don't think that the, Mr. Amit Shah has called someone and said, Barka ko I think someone has decided, Yaar, why take this chance? Yeah, hai, hai, kaafi, Haan, exactly. <laughs> okay. hai bhi to, so, was a mistake. Okay. So, right? so you said now. Uh, do you also think that? And then you, you know, there was a, I don't know, it was announced, but you know, you and Shekhar are supposed to launch print together. That did happen. What I'm getting at is, and rather bluntly, <laughs> has Barkha become too big? Ki Barkha is the brand. She can't build a team like. The frequency with which the falling out happens with promoters, you know, the, the, your fight with Kapil Sibyl and, and his wife on, mm. on, on social media, it was, it was pretty intense, uh, you know, your take have on you the You've never fought with a promoter? No, I have, but the, I have been You're a promoter. You're just Barkha, so no one's discussing so, your life in no, public. I, 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 That's the only difference. I, no, see, the thing, I started small screen when I was 24. <laughs> and when I was 24, I couldn't fight Arun Puri or Madhu or anything. So, uh, so, I mean, I, but, but the point is that do you think the skill set required mm -hmm. to set up a team and enterprise is very different from being a good reporter? Yes, yes, yes. I have no problem uh, acknowledging uh, that my primary exposure has been to be the maverick of the newsroom, who's a br you know brilliant at her work, but probably has the reputation of not being an organization person in terms of not having those skills of patience, indulgence, whatever, whatever, whatever is Decision needed. making is different as a promoter, it's different as a reporter. And when you wear both hats, yes. it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it will not work out is, is what I'm trying to get at. No, so there are two separate things here. You said to me, do you think the skill sets needed are different? And has Barkha become too big a star? So let me, let me answer step by step. Are the skill sets needed to be a great reporter and a good entrepreneur different? The short answer is yes. 
Did I always have the skills needed to be an entrepreneur? The short answer is no. I spent most of my life as a journalist, right? As an employee in an organization where I did not have to think about anything but the story. Uh, do the fights with the promoters show that I am not a good team leader? The short answer is no. To me, the fight with the, with the promoter shows that I'm a person of integrity who has the guts to call a spade a spade. Maybe that doesn't make me very clever. Maybe that doesn't make me very diplomatic. Maybe that makes it difficult for me to survive in the environment we're in this country. But in both of the cases that I had the fight, and that doesn't mean that I'm blameless at all times, but I'm just saying these particular fights that I had, I had a fight with one over the censorship of a story. I had a fight with the other because he put 150 to 200 people who were earning 20,000 rupees on the street and refused to pay them even a month's salary. And I had to publicly confront him because he was refusing to pay these people. And although I was not their editor, I was not their entrepreneur, I was not their team leader, I felt a moral pressure to speak up for them because I think a lot of them came to the channel because they said, Barkha hai aur Karan hai, to thiki hoga. The result of that is that Kapil Sibyl refused to pay me my year's salary because he was so pissed off with me that I had spoken for these people. So they got paid and I didn't get paid and I'm in court against him. Now, a number of well-meaning people said exactly this. reputation case file. And I said, no, this man has done this because he thinks he's a big lawyer and I'd be too scared to take him to court. I'm not scared. What is left to happen? The television industry has told me that you're very good. Each one of them said, you're very good. But boss politics, right? Now, am I going to let this define my self-esteem and my life? So I have many flaws. I have a, you know, I have a volatile side to my personality. I react, I'm tempestuous, I'm impetuous. But in both the cases you've cited, I did the correct thing, in my opinion. Are you a prima donna? What's you, wrong with being a prima no, donna? I'm, I'm not saying anything wrong. Do men, Is, get, do men get asked this question? Uh, sorry? Do men get asked this question? I would. I mean, is it prima like, donna a gendered uh, adjective? Maybe it is gendered, but uh, I will. Like I, I, I will not get defensive on being accused no, of no, sexism no, no. here. I'm not, I'm not but I, I, I will part, say, but yeah, but, but I will but, say. But women are seen sure. But no, but that's not true. I mean, yeah. I will say, for example, um, you know, I have for a year and a half worked in Bollywood as an assistant director. There were many male stars who we used to call prima donnas. Why? They will come two hours late. They will be short. They will not be ready. So no, that's, that's so. Am I saying as Barkha become bigger than the brand, so no brand wants her? No, no. I was never, I was told in each case, I was given very specific offers to do shows. So I was clearly not a prima donna when I was given those offers, right? I was given offers down to this is your, this is what we'll pay you. This is the number of people you'll work with. This is the time slot that you'll be doing your show in. And I was, those offers were taken back after a certain political development. So clearly, whether or not I'm a prima donna, uh, that risk was considered worth taking, point one. Point two, am I a prima donna in that I don't, I, I will eat anything, I will sleep anywhere, I will work 24 hours a day. What I do not do is I do not mince my words. Does that get me into trouble? Yes. Does that make me the easiest employee to have? No. Every promoter would want someone who doesn't argue back. Do I argue back? Yes. Does this make me always wrong? No, I think sometimes it makes the promoter wrong. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah, so let's have some Q&A, although I still have so many questions, yeah, but anyway, take okay. But no, no, let's get the audience in. So uh, one by one, if you just raise your hands, I'll call out to you and then you can ask your question. Uh, do we have any questions? Otherwise, I'll just continue with mine. Okay, I have one with the lady there at the back and one with the gentleman. So let's start with the lady there and then the gentleman in the white suit. Hello. 
Hi, so I've been following your Instagram very incessantly. Uh, so I just have a general question. Um, you've met and worked with all types of people, right? And you've uh, been in contact with people in power, and I don't mean just politically. Yeah. Uh, so these are people who influence the common man and woman of this country every day. So why do you think a lot of these people don't speak up or reach out about a lot of issues? Because then you're asked if you're a prima donna. <laughs> no, but, but more seriously, because there is an environment of complete Chinese whispers, right? I actually think, so there are two parts to it. A lot of people don't speak because somebody has told them you'll get into trouble if you speak. Who that somebody is, if you dig a little deeper, which doesn't mean that we are not in a more controlled political environment than before we are. There's, there, there are no two ways about that. When you have a party in government that has enormous uh, electoral muscle, there is, a, there is a sense that people are more wary of speaking out against it, right? The other thing that's happened is the sense of the mob. I have seen any number of people on social media, in particular on social media, who are not able to express what they really believe because they get trolled. Mm. And you know, some of us are so thick-skinned, we're like, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I, it's like a vaccine for me, right? If you want to talk about the language, I don't care. Sometimes I react, even I react. But I have seen younger people, thinner-skinned people who are like, yeah, we yeah. Not just they, younger people, even older people, they, it impacts them deeply. So the, the, the toxicity of social media, combined with the fear of power, has made a lot of people keep quiet. Uh, and combined with, you know, sometimes it takes one person to break the chain. One person speaks, other people are ready to speak. And I think we saw that in some ways in the protests against the uh, NRC, which with all its muscle, the government did not go through with it because there were young kids protesting. And it's very difficult um, for a government to fight with 18-year-olds. Uh, the young man there in the white suit, yeah. And, and if, you, if you just keep your questions short so we can get more in. Sure. Uh, hey, Barkha, I'm uh, Sumit. Thank you for the evening, Abhinandan and Barkha. So first, Barkha, I am privileged to, I mean, encounter someone at that stage of the life where someone says that this is the moment that I have lived for. I mean, thank you for saying that, uh, the Cargill story and something that you would relate to that. Uh, so my question essentially is, uh, where is the journalism headed? Because I would, in my individual capacity, I would respect probably uh, the gentleman on the Republic TV for certain reasons, but for you, uh, for, for certain different reasons. But I'm confused now. Where are we headed? He covers one story. You say that this is not a story at all. No, this I didn't Just an that. example. No, no, I, I, I want to say something. I don't think Sushant Singh Rajput is not a story. I think it's a story. I just don't think it's a story that is bigger than the Chinese still sitting in Galwan. Uh, the fact that our infection rate is spiking, uh, but our death rate is quite low on, on COVID, uh, on the fact that 1.8 crore salaried people have lost their jobs since April. It's a story, but is it the only story? That's, that's all I'm saying. My personal reason for not getting into it is that I'm not able to really, uh, today, India Today has published the WhatsApp conversation between a film director and Riya Chakrabarti. I, I can't do this. I can't sit here and speculate over what happened at some party, who slept with whom, who said, who had an affair with whom, then I should have joined film fair, yeah. I, I, I just, this is not my skill set. So you have to recognize 
That's why I made, if I made a mistake with the therapist interview, it didn't venture into the story at all. I think that was a bigger mistake. I had stayed out of it, I should have stayed out of it. Because this is, it's not in my skill set. I don't know how to do this story. I'm no good at it. And also, I'll, uh, we have a question there, but I will just want to step in on this. Uh, okay, we have three here. That, um, Barkha is a lot more polite, although she, she is blunt at times. This time she hasn't been. Uh, the gentleman you mentioned, Arnab, I don't believe what he's doing is uh, journalism or it's a story. Uh, in fact, on News Laundry, we've done a report mm -hmm. of the so-called activist who he had there, whose conspiracy theory, this entire thing has been spun around. And we spoke, I mean, not I, but our, my colleague, the reporter, spoke to that guy. He says, I wrote So when I was a young reporter at News Track, and I've said this on a podcast, you know, we used to keep hearing there was a NK Singh was, I think, Revenue Secretary, and there was raids on Madhuri Dikshit and yeah, Shah Rukh Khan, there were a bunch of raids. And many, we used to get theories, ki, bhai, raid Madhuri ghar pe? we did not go on television and say, by the way, is this true or is it not? If you don't have evidence, someone has just payload something. So payloading something every night is not journalism. So I'm not saying you shouldn't respect him, uh, but maybe you should respect him for being a good circus master. I think... It is vile what he does, and I, at least, am not going to let that pass with politeness. Uh, sorry, the gentleman there. Uh, okay, there's a young boy here. After that, we'll come there, and then the lady here. Hi, Barka. Thanks so much for taking your time Where today. Where you? Sorry. Oh, yeah, there. Hi. Yeah, hi. So, I had a question uh, which was sort of related to something I've been uh, tackling. Like, we've started to relate news channels to political organizations. Yeah. So, as an insider, I wanted to understand, you know, what is this politic politics and news nexus sort of run like? Can you give shed some light on that? So, all my life, uh, a certain section has called me a congressy. I want to tell this audience that the Gandhis don't speak to me and hate me. Right? Um, to which Abhinandan is going to say it must be get in line. <laughs> get in line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But this is, I'm sharing this for a reason. We have got into this very dangerous space as an audience, and I now want to throw this back at you guys. You go to content looking, it's, it's, it's a confirmation bias problem. If I do not confirm your bias or what you want to hear, you're going to call me the other side. You guys have no idea what truly independent people go through. We make enemies every day, right? Uh, people dislike us for a story every day. The more mature politicians sometimes sulk for a year, two years, then they make up. The less mature politicians just don't talk to you at all and they decide they don't need to because there's now so much media that if they don't talk to you, they'll talk to someone else, right? So I think that while to some extent, our media is mirroring our politics in terms of the polarization. And it's what I call, uh, and I really am going to patent this phrase, I feel that our media has become chamcha ya morcha, that there are only two kinds of media now. So there's either the full chaplu, see ki pair pe, you know, let jao. Or there's the other which is like full, like, sadat pe nikle morcha bazi. Personally, I have a problem with both models, just because at heart I'm a reporter and I think let the story speak. If the story is factually true, it'll, you know, let it have its own impact. But you don't need to be an activist uh, to make your point. You should be a journalist. Your story should make the point, not you. That is, that is my belief. So this nexus, I think it's overstated. I think what's actually happening in journalism today is that 80% of media uh, is beholden to power. Power, simply. That it's a very powerful government. 
they think the audience, the people who vote for them also want to hear the same thing. They're doing it because they think all of you want it. And 20% is so ideological or maybe 18% because there are some 2% of us floaters. But there is an 18% that is like, this is so evil. All our journalism is going to be somehow to prove that they're awful. So if you talk to anyone right of center, you're a traitor, right? I, I am a classic example of someone not left enough for the left and not right enough for the right. I mean, I, I don't fit into these camps at all. I just do what I think is correct. Uh, the gentleman in the corner there, if you can get that, and this young lady. Okay, fine. Let's go with her, her first. Yeah. And after that, we can just take the mic there. Yeah. Okay, sure. Oh, sorry. Hi. So just, I think, uh, going off of that question, I kind of had the same question, but... Um, uh, how do you stay afloat if you're an, an independent like media house and you're not a barkha that like because well, obviously it's easy for me to stay afloat no but i mean i would say that you, you mean as a business or as monetarily as right business, yeah yeah i and, know and also like just a little bit of a follow-up as well that um like where would the where would you see the money come from if not like people who expect to impose their narrative on you yeah so i think that's a great question um and i think I'm sure Abhinandan will add to this because I think a lot of... So just see, pause for a moment and think of the number of people, because all of you I'm sure serve content online, who are now doing their own ventures. Small, big, medium, right? There's something happening. There's a churn happening. The churn may have started for political or coercive reasons. But I think to be fair to all of the individuals in this space, we've embraced it and we've made it our own moment and we are doing the damnedest best we can with the opportunities that we have. And we're remaining authentic to our voice. Good, bad, ugly, we are remaining who we are. We expect bluntly the money to come from all of you. And let me explain what I mean by that. You've got to start paying for content. You cannot non-stop complain. Everywhere I go, people complain non-stop about TV media in particular. That's the one thing that people complain about. They don't necessarily complain about newspapers. They complain non-stop about TV media. But you are willing to pay that whatever, I don't know what it costs now, 500 rupees to Tata Sky? What does a Tata Sky subscription cost? Depends on your package, madam. Okay. But you're willing to pay whatever X to Tata Sky, right? To get that package. If you really like the content of, it can be whoever. It doesn't have to be me, it doesn't have to be Abhinandan. If, you're some, if there's someone you see whose content that you, li you like, that person is eventually going to turn to subscription. Eventually that is the future of content. Li and secondly, I, don't, I know news laundry, your advertisement free, right? Yes. So I am not that puritanical about this. Uh, I believe that advertising will have to move from television to digital. Already on YouTube, and both of us are on YouTube, algorithmically ads are placed. We've disabled it. You've disabled them. So I accept the algorithm, my channel is monetized on YouTube, I accept the algorithmic uh, ads. So unlike Abhinandan, who is statedly free from advertising, I don't think that that's realistic um, for the stage of media that we're at. So I believe that advertisers should understand that they are backing stale, formulaic things and they should have at least some significant percentage of their advertising moving to digital content. So I see the future of digital content coming from two or three places. One is subscription or contributions from viewers who believe in your product. The second is advertising moving. And the third 
is that non-news is going to have to subsidize news. And there's just no getting around this. And the best publications in the world, you know, there's a New Yorker festival that happens every summer. People do pre-COVID, all of us did offline events as a way to generate revenue. And we channeled or funneled that revenue back uh, into our companies. I believe a combination of these three will remain uh, how we'll survive. I'll just quickly, you know, News Radio started in 2012. And uh, I had very clearly at that time stated me and my co-founder Madhu Trehan uh, that we will be ad-free because our slogan is when the public pays, the public is served. Uh, I had actually saved this moment for the end of the interview, but I shall do it right now. Uh, we believe that, and that's a positioning thing, why we've disabled Google ads and YouTube pre-roll ads is because you can't position yourself as an ad-free platform. When the public pays, the public is served. When advertisers pay, advertisers are served. That is the slogan we go with. Pay to keep news free. So I urge all of you, go to newslaundry.com, pay to keep news free, because you can't expect advertisers to pay and then news to serve you. They will serve the advertiser. Uh, that is just too basic a relationship. Uh, and I think it is inevitable for news to survive, for journalism to survive. It will become subscription driven. When I started in 2012, I was told by everyone that there is no way this is happening. Uh, I can tell you, I can sustain myself on subscriptions. I don't need an advertiser. And do you have it's a fixed, taken, do you have a fixed rate? Uh, we have to, we have, you have to have a fixed rate and uh, your chartered account will explain it to you that if you keep it open, then the government will say service tax, though, sub pay though, I mean, they, they'll screw you. You have to, I mean, there are, they, they, you have to be very careful about what you do, especially the news is a very high risk and low returns business. People who are in news, and people who are purely in news are in news because they're passionate about it. If you own mining and you're in news, you're doing it as a lobbying for your mining. But people who are only doing news, it's very high risk and low returns. Uh, but I believe that eventually everybody will start become subscribe based. Many people who would tell me back in 2012, 2013, और अगर आप अगस्त में न्यूज़ लॉन्ड्री की सब्सक्रिप्शन लो ये मैं बरखा के लिए लाया हूँ गिफ्ट यू गेट इंडिपेंडेंस ए मंथ जैस्मिन लेमन ग्रास एंड ऑरेंज सोप डूइंग सबकी धुलाई क्योंकि वी डू सबकी धुलाई हिंदू मुस्लिम सिख ईसाई सबकी धुलाई सबकी धुलाई Barkha, please, this is Sabki Dhulai soap set, which comes with a subscription of News Laundry, which Barkha can have it, for at least 20 seconds. It will kill all Kitanu and all that. It, it's the Sabki Dhulai soap set. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you don't pay for news, don't complain to me about it. Suck it up yeah. and watch uh, Arnab. Yeah, there. Yeah, hi. Uh, Barkha, yes. um, my question was that I'm sure you have had a journey when you were a young journalist and uh, a purist. I'm sure along the journey, once you have experience, it builds uh, perceptions, mm -hmm. it builds biases. Sure. And as you grow in influence, mm. and I'm sure when you report a story now, do you think, how are you able to keep your personal bias or your ability to voice a certain side of the story away from the true side of the story? There might be some internal conflict within you that you are seeing one side of it because you're leaning towards one side of it and projecting that. Yeah. And how do you keep that thing going that it remains pure? So there are two, three different things here, right? Um, are any of us clinically objective? It's not possible. We are trained to see the world in a certain way. We are triggered by different things. 
certain things that I find offensive, somebody else may not find offensive. Certain things that anger me may not anger somebody else. Uh, on certain stories where I can see that there's another side, the best I can do is to give equal space to both sides. But if it's a story where I believe that there is no other side, like I don't believe in my assessment, in my best assessment, there is only a singular truth. I don't think that it's my job to give the other side, right? Uh, there are personal conflicts. I do not do stories on friends. I don't do them. I don't do good stories on friends and I don't do critical stories on friends uh, because I do not trust myself to be objective. Uh, I think the best way to handle that is maybe to disclose a relationship if, if it exists or whatever, or to step aside from that story. I don't believe that it's possible really for me now, tomorrow, if you were like one of my oldest childhood friends and you were in some story, I, I, I'd rather just sit out the story and let everybody wonder why I'm sitting out that story, but I know that it's a conflict of interest for me. So there are three buckets of what you've said. Where there's a personal angle involved, I would ideally not like to do that story. And I have lost certain friendships because I have done the story because that issue has been big enough for me to do the story and lose the friendship. But I don't trust myself to be, I mean, I'm not a robot. I, I, there are people who are my friends who I don't trust myself to report on objectively and I try and sit out those stories. If you're talking about my ideology, I think the best I can do is to give people who are different from my ideology the same space but there will be the odd story where I will think that there is no other side. I'm trying to give you an example, but I mean, I can give you examples of sexual violence where I don't think there's another side. Uh, you know, I don't, I just don't think there's another side. Uh, so I don't know that I would think that there's any objectivity left to convey in that story, for example. So that's how I handle it. It's, there's no perfect formula. So um, we'll move on to any other questions. There's yeah, one here, just, but I'll just uh, quickly, uh, uh, you know, Aristotle said that you must always plug your product wherever you are. He didn't. It's just one of those. Uh, uh, there's a podcast I've done on objectivity on News Laundry. It's paid for a podcast. You have to subscribe to listen to it. <laughs> where the myth of objectivity or not being biased, only math is not objective. Even physics and chemistry is subjective. Uh, so the best you can do is stick to the facts as you know it. Yeah. Uh, but the prism of our life experiences will you know, come through and that is inevitable. So when I hear the word objectivity thrown around and, and you know, like Barkha said, there was a, we have used to seeing films like Mother India where Nargis shoots Sunil Dutt and, and Nirupa Roy gives the gun to Shashi Kapoor, you know, Bhagwan kare, sawal poochte vakt tera mic na kaampe. She says, goli chalate vakt tere haath na kaampe. But that doesn't really happen in, in real life. So one uh, very fundamental question, we started this evening with migrants and the entire migrant crisis question to you is that uh, will the migrants stay back, will they return and what will influence their decision one way or the other? So this is a story I actually did follow to its logical conclusion because one of the things journalists are accused of is that you do the headline then you never follow through. So towards the end of my journey I actually went to multiple villages where migrants had returned to see what was happening after they'd returned and it was really tragic because we found that the penury and the poverty that they'd sought to escape in the city they'd faced exactly the same penury and the poverty in the village. And so there's this complete sense of panic and most of them said, here is nothing here. factory So I think you're going to see the beginning of reverse migration uh, in, in the sense of them returning to the cities. But I don't think there are enough jobs in the cities. So I think this is going to be the next big crisis. 
And the second big crisis, and I'm 100% sure of this because I've documented it, almost every migrant worker is in debt. Everybody either took debt to travel to the village or is now taking debt to come back to the city or to feed their children. Or, and remember that you know there's a whole children dimension. They're coming back to the city but without their families. Uh, so I do think that the second phase, I mean, we haven't spoken about COVID at all. I do think that we're, uh, we've got over the worst in COVID. And I, I, I wish we could spend five minutes just speaking about that separately. Um, but the humanitarian and the economic crisis is only just beginning. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Hello, ma'am. Thank Hi. you so much for being here. Uh, my question is, so yeah, this year, India got ranked 142 in Global uh, Press Freedom Index, right? Um, so what can we do to stop this erosion of freedom? And by when I say we, I mean not only the journalists, but also we as consumers of journalism. How can we work towards stopping that erosion of freedom? Well, for one, I think we have to stop being the urban Indian who says, why can't we be more like China? I mean, I guess after COVID, at least we, we'll stop saying that, right? Uh, but, but the number of people who actually feel that press freedom is not a big deal uh, is actually a slightly scary thing. And many of them are my friends and family. So I'm not really making some big judgment here. But I know any number of people who say, yeah, I should have just stayed on in Singapore. Because people now have that sense that news is not free here. And to be honest, most of mainstream media is captured today by power, by, by power, or by people's own biases, or by people's own need to suck up, right? So what can you do? You can support journalism that you believe in. It can be the Mojo story, it can be News Laundry, it can be Fede Souza, it can be Anubha Bhosle, it can be, I don't know, who else am I missing? There's Scroll, there's Print, there's Swaraj, there's everybody. There's so many people who have broken free from uh, sort of big corporate ownerships, right? And who are bit by bit, little by little, trying to create islands of excellence in the best way that they know how. I also think, and we didn't talk about this, that the future is not going to belong to big media. Because I think the revenue model is so broken that they're not going to, very few of them will be able to survive. But small independent media will not survive either unless you pay for it, right? So. What, so Guardian has a model that I would personally, if the law permitted, like to embrace, which is that I would personally not want to say, you've got to pay 250 rupees to watch my stories. I would like to say, if you can pay 50 rupees, pay 50 rupees. If you can pay 50,000 rupees, pay 50,000 rupees. If you can pay zero, you can still watch them, right? That's the Guardian model. And I would personally like to go with that model, but people have to care more about what they're being shown. Right now, the danger is people see TV news, at least, as entertainment. It's just to be laughed at, gossiped about. But it does impact how they think. But it does impact. I mean, the number of people who will today believe that Riya Chakravarti murdered Sushant Singh Rajput is only a function of what they've seen on television. Sure. And they might think it's funny, but it's actually not funny. You know, it's not funny. I'm saying I don't know what she did. But that, that some of us just believed it because it was said on TV enough times is scary. So on that note, we shall call it a night. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have loved to get those two, three minutes can on I, COVID. Can I, can I just, I just want to share what on COVID. Yes, yes, please. I, I was going to ask you for that. Because I really feel passionately about yeah, this yeah, COVID. It's do. a purely technical thing, but because I've devoted the last five months of my life on this. 
Uh, I think that you all may have read about what's called a serological survey. So if you haven't, let me tell you what's been happening. What's been happening is that sample surveys are being done in different cities to see if you have antibodies. The antibodies tell us very simply, I'm not using medical jargon here, whether you've had COVID and you may not even know it. Now in Bombay, the survey showed you that 57% of slums and 16% of non-slums have had COVID. Right? In, in Pune, the figure was about 27% or 29%. In Delhi, the figure was about 30%. And today, there's a survey out that says it's 26% pan-India. These numbers are actually even much higher because the sampling was not done in Bombay, for example, in the worst areas. Meaning Dharavi, for example, it was the worst area. That's not where the survey was taken. What does this tell us? It tells us that the infection is about 20 to 30 times possibly more widespread than the official data tells us. Now all of you are going to go, oh my God, this is terrible, oh God, no. It's good news because we have been computing our death rate by the known number of infections, right? So let's say we think 100 people have COVID and two people are dying every day. But it turns out that not 100 but 1,000 people have COVID and even accounting for an underreporting of deaths which is taking place, six people are dying, not two, six people. The infection fatality rate is still very low. So I'm not saying the people who are dying should be dying. I'm not saying you should go somewhere without your mask. You shouldn't sanitize. You shouldn't wash your hands. But I think that in localized areas, we are beginning to see clear evidence of herd immunity, which basically means enough of the population has the virus for it to have lost or diminished in its power to kill. Right? So things are getting better. I wish the government would come out and say, live your life. Wear your mask. If you go to Southeast Asian countries, you see people, it's, it's a normal thing for people to wear their mask. If you're in crowded areas, wear your mask. Do not wear your mask if you go for a jog. Do not wear your mask if you go for a walk. Please do not. We've had people dying um, from this. Look, I'm no doctor, but this is really something I've spent my life obsessing about in the last six months. Things are way better, and we need to step out of our fear and anxiety and start living again. So. Yeah, on, and then on that note, uh, Yes. On that, on that note, Har Haryana just announced a lockdown over the weekend. So there you go. Okay, so, so, uh, so, so thank you, Barkha. I, I must uh, tell everybody, since News Laundry started, the whole idea was that we will do Sabki Dhulai, meaning journalists. And while politicians have very thin skins, they don't actually, it's the journalists who have the thinnest skins. And Barkha is one of the few who I can ask whatever I want and I do not become katti. And there are many senior, senior journalists who if you have a disagreement with, they will never even talk to you again. So thank you, Barkha, for your candor. Thank you for your work, which has been amazing. And to all of you, uh, support Mojo. I don't know if they have a payment gateway, but... Uh, okay, so... So, so you got... You got to... You got to and, and if you subscribe to News Laundry during the month of August, you get the Sapki Dhulai soap set. Is that cool or what? <laughs> so, on that note, have a great evening. Thank you for being a wonderful audience. Thank you, Vivek, for this wonderful experience after a long time. I hope we can do this more often. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.